Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody, welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and critic, and today I'm going to be talking to a much better writer, Mark Harris. He is the author of Five Came Home, Pictures from the Revolution, and his new biography of the director Mike Nichols, which has been a huge success as well. Please remember, if you enjoy the podcast, to like it, and subscribe and spread the word as far wide as you can because otherwise you're just being selfish. I mean, this is a very niche podcast, people who like reading books about cinema. So the more people who who would be happy and uh, would get something out of it that know about it, the better it would be. So thanks very much if you can do that. You could also follow me on Twitter if you're so inclined at Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. But before you do any of that, Please enjoy the conversation. Now, so Scenes is the British edition. For some reason, when it was published in, in 2008, the UK publisher insisted that nobody knew what pictures meant in England. And I've since talked to a whole bunch of English people who've said, that's not true. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, 
And, and so to this day, people think that I wrote two similarly titled books, but they're, they're identical. Yeah, no, I, I did that thing of flipping between Amazon in the UK and Amazon in America, trying to work out which one was the the, the definitive, or but they're identical, so that's great. They're, they're identical. I don't understand it. I suppose it's too late to fix it, and nobody in England will care anyway. So, but it's just a strange little thing. Yeah, we used to. I mean, we used to use the word pictures as a as a all the time. Going to the pictures was going to the flicks. Going to the pictures, you know, it was perfectly uh, understandable. It's slightly archaic now but it's slightly archaic in the u.s now so you know it's yeah. I, I don't understand it how did you start writing do you remember what your first review was did you work as a critic first what was your uh, yeah i started out uh in the after college in the in the late 80s uh as as an entertainment journalist uh writing primarily about television because that was the job i could get you know uh reviewing tv this was obviously pre-internet so for for any any place that would have me which was not many places and and sometimes just my one of my first jobs was just writing listings for a syndication service that gave tv listings to newspapers that couldn't afford their own tv critics so it, so it wasn't criticism it was it was tonight on full house the girls get a surprise but do you remember what surprise was <laughs> you know i don't i don't remember <laughs> what the surprise but i do remember that sentence and, and and writing it and really feeling like well i hope i've just hit bottom as an entertainment <laughs> journalist that's you the know. sentence that is your like uh, After marker. This, it's really just like you know addressing envelopes i guess that's writing too um <laughs> and then in in 1990 when entertainment weekly launched in the u.s the, i got a job there as a staff writer and started to write about television and also to be sent out to report stories and do interviews and uh, i did that for a few years and then uh just a, a couple of years later moved over to movies covering movies and then fairly quickly to editing. So when I came to the point of writing my first book, Pictures at a Revolution, uh, which I started in 2004, it was at a time when I had spent the last more than 10 years being primarily an editor rather than a writer. And so I felt like I had a lot of writing trapped in me like I'd missed my 30s as a writer and was was very eager to make up for lost time right and all that and editing means you're also reading a hell of a lot of other people's stuff so there's that sense of um of okay here I go I've got to prove not prove myself necessarily but yeah I can only stand on the sidelines for so long right and this was I mean this was I loved being an editor and this was largely pre-internet which meant that I was working with a staff of writers face to face in an office every day really talking through stories with them and helping them rewrite in some cases doing the rewriting myself and others but it was very hands-on face-to-face work and I loved it and I didn't miss writing while I was doing it because I felt like I was very writing adjacent and and getting to direct the movie coverage for a magazine at a time when that was just really fun and magazines were not yet the sort of endangered species that that the internet would soon make them but I was ready by 2004 to to try my hand in a book I thought what was the move like from tv to film was that like uh was that you following your own interests or was that just the the, the job that was available or how, how did that move take place uh, well it was the job that was available but but I had always been interested in both and and it was 
it was interesting to me that a lot of the entertainment journalists I met then, and and still a lot that I meet now, uh, you could be interested in movies and music, or you could be interested in TV. But but those seem to be like two separate categories. I think now that the line has started to blur and that we're having many more discussions about what is a movie and that streaming services are, you know, uh, just changing the whole discussion, I think, about the, the, the difference between TV and movies. Like, I think they're very distinct things, but I also think that it's a really good thing that there's not a bright line between them in terms of coverage anymore. I don't think you can really understand what's going on in the movie business if you're completely ignorant about TV. And I don't think you can understand the changes in television if you don't know anything about the movie business and who owns what and and what streaming means to movie studios. So I think it's good to be kind of ambidextrous about those things. Yeah, I've noticed, I write occasionally for Sight and Sound, and I've noticed they're very much moving towards basically anything that appears on a screen, we're going to have a look at and consider, you know, they're definitely more. Whereas in the past, it would be, with the exceptions like a David Lynch, you know, the Twin Peaks Return or, or, or Fassbinder's Berlin Alexander Platz or something like that. It seems to be much more welcoming. Right. Yeah. So when it came to uh, sitting down and doing your first book, it's a brilliant concept. It's a really good concept, the idea of looking at the 1968 best winners category in the Oscars. Are you someone who's like, are you attracted to the Oscars as a, as a thing? As a, as a... I, I am. I've, I've, I've always enjoyed covering them. I think they, I mean, you know, so much in, in movies and movie history is kind of transient that I, I really do love the idea of something that's existed almost for 100 years now and that provides a snapshot once a year of how the industry sees itself. I love its fallibility. I love its temporariness. I love that, you know, I don't think it it really, I, I'm not a person who hand rings a lot about it doing a lot of harm because I think in the long run, in the contest between the Oscars and a movie, the movie will always win. You know, nothing is really hurt by by not winning an Oscar, although some movies I think have their reputations hurt considerably by winning an Oscar. But but yeah, I, I like them as a cultural phenomenon and I, I've always been interested in them as a window into something wider. And so I didn't want to write an Oscar book. And, you know, when I started Pictures of a Revolution, I thought, well, there's a problem here in that, you know, and like, I can't build suspense out of something, the result of which anyone can Google and have in two minutes. But I do think that I can, I can use these five movies, which I, I just felt strongly that I had a good idea with that particular combination of five movies. And that also, a couple of them, their origin stories started so early in 1963, basically, that I would be able to like parade through the whole middle of the 60s um, in the course of telling these stories, which is something that I really wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, it's really a moment which is on the cusp of, you know, going into New Hollywood with Arthur Penn and Bonnie and Clyde. But at the, at the same time, you have sort of Dr. Doolittle and those films which are... and and maybe even more so, guess who's coming to dinner? Guess who's coming to dinner? Is that the right title? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> For a second, I thought it might have been look who's coming. No, that, that doesn't even grammatically run. No, it's, it's guess who's. <laughs> Which seems to like to be a, a throwback even technically to the sort of 40s in terms of things. But but you do, I mean, it's more complicated the picture than that, isn't it? Because as you say, with Bonnie and Clyde, that actually is has long gestating as a project. It's not just you know the most happening now thing that, that's going 
Right. I mean, one one thing I really wanted to make clear about the making of movies is that even now when we write about movies, we tend to talk about them as if they were conceived the day before we saw them. I mean, I saw this this summer when um, In the Heights opened in, in the U.S. and it was widely described as as a reopening movie, a movie about New York coming back to life. And of course, you know, the, the pandemic was not only uh, the furthest thing from anyone's mind when um, the the musical was written, but the furthest thing from anyone's mind when the movie was shot. And in the mid 60s, uh, that was particularly a kind of occupational hazard of making movies because standards were changing so rapidly and mores were shifting so quickly that if you conceived something that felt very up to the minute in uh, 1964 or 1965, and that was your goal, by 1967 or 1968, it could already feel old-fashioned and and a little quaint. And I'm just fascinated by that uh, and by the the futility, really, of trying to chase the moment if you're a movie maker. And, and so that was something I really wanted to write about in that first book. I mean, one of the key roles there, or one of the key figures there, I think, is, is Sidney Poitier, that in the sense that in uh, in the heat of the night, he feels he's he's really pushing in into new ground, and then he sort of has to move straight on from that to guess who's coming to dinner and play the kind of the noble black man who has no faults whatsoever. Uh, in right, and he, and he just dodges a, an even worse role in a third one of those movies, Doctor Doolittle, where he he would really play an offensive stereotype. And and you know, I, I think Sidney Poitier's career to me is so moving. Um, it's the thing I emotionally most connect to in Pictures at a Revolution because to live this paradox of starting to be rejected as a relic of another age by your own people at precisely the moment that you become the biggest movie star in Hollywood is, is really heartbreaking to me. And, and you know, it, it's a good reminder. And I think this has um, resonance with our era as well, that um, that the judgment of the public can be very swift and very cruel and also really fallible. But, you know, we're, we're th- there are certain kinds of moviegoers who are very, very eager to discard something that they, they feel has outlived its usefulness. And, um, and often those are the most ardent and vocal movie fans. So it can really feel like it has the force of judgment. And I think that kind of glib discarding often does not hold up very well over time. I certainly don't think it held up well with Sidney Poitier. Because there's a sense of there being an avant-garde in, in, in the audience, but then, you know, uh, Stanley Kramer's making this movie for the whole of America, and he's very aware of what will play and what won't. Maybe, maybe too timid from our point of view, from our perspective, but looking at the perspective of those times, I think that's what the book does wonderfully is it, it couches it in that context. So you might not necessarily agree with the decisions, but you at least understand them. Right. Well, with with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, I think this relates to something that's very current as well, which is how do you shift things? Do you do you do you shift things to the left by standing far to the left and pulling everything in your direction? Or do you shift things by standing in the center and moving it two inches toward the left? That is, I think, what Stanley Kramer was doing. He thought he was a revolutionary pulling something left from the left, 
what he really was was a mainstream American filmmaker and the sort of revolutionary thing that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner did, even though I don't think it's a revolutionary movie, um, there's no question that it did have an effect on kind of mainstream, middle of the road America. It was a huge hit that brought into people's field of vision something that a lot of them had not seen before, even when in certain cities and among certain generations, it already felt like old news. Yeah, and then you get something like in the heat of the night where you have Poitier hitting a, a, a white guy a, a, who, who, you know, in, in return for being hit himself, I, I should, I should, if someone hasn't seen the film. And there's that wonderful description of San Francisco, the San Francisco screening of everybody suddenly going really quiet because it's like, we just haven't seen this before. You know, I still, sometimes I do screenings uh, related to the book and I still have so much fun showing that movie to people because it's better technically in every way than they think it's going to be. They think they're going to end up watching an old late 1960s like TV police procedural. And then there are things like that moment in it that still jolt people um, in a really pleasurable way. Yeah, absolutely. And they made a they made a sequel that I never saw, which I, wasn't it, it was actually called they called me Mr. Tibbs, I think. Yeah, there were there were sequels. There was that, and then the, and then he made one more. That they're not very good. But what's interesting is it it you know by the time he makes the first sequel, which is only I think three years later, we're already in a different era of black movie stardom, which he kind of caused and then did not become a part of. I mean, by the last of the Mr. Tibbs movies, we're, we're right on the edge of the black exploitation era with things like Shaft and Superfly and, and Cotton Comes to Harlem. And that was a, a mode of movie making that Sidney Poitier was not interested in. And yet he had like he was out of step with it and yet he had also made it possible it's it's really a fascinating career it's it's weird it's like those rock and roll sort of that first generation of rock and roll musicians who were like in their 30s when they suddenly found themselves sort of the golden oldies they they'd broken down the barriers and then the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and Elvis Presley came along, and and they were well, even Elvis Presley to some extent was sort of like a, a nostalgic favorite, you know, quite young. Right. I mean, you 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 don't get very old at all before you have to start looking over your shoulder to see who's <laughs> right behind you. And yet, despite the sort of the sort of uh, controversial subject matter or the delicate subject matter that they the these films were dealing with, the, the the sort of most far out and weirdest film by far seems to be Doctor Doolittle, which is just it's just a nuts, <laughs> crazy, you know, alcohol fueled excess right I, I mean i always tell people if they're reading the book sometimes they'll say like oh and i really want to watch all five movies you don't have to watch that one um it's actually more fun to read about but the book doesn't work without it because it's the it's the it's the rule to which everything else is an exception it's the business that hollywood studios thought they were supposed to be in all of the other four movies i write about are kind of lower budget the graduate is actually an indie they're off the sort of mainstream list of what the studios are doing that year but dr doolittle is the point of 20th century fox you know and all of the ways in which it goes wrong picking a release date before you've got a completed script throwing good money after bad, figuring things out, uh, you know, about the script uh, while, when you're on the set that you should have thought of months earlier. There's a lot 
of relevance to how movies are made now um, uh, by studios that that that's packed into Doctor Doolittle. And also, uh, also hiring a star who's incredibly difficult on the back of a sort of slightly flukish late career hit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's researching Rex Harrison was the only point when I was working on the book where I actually had to stop and and say to myself, okay, I everything I'm finding out about him is so terrible that I need to kind of hit pause and see if I can find some people who will give me the good side of him, who worked with him. I mean, this was 12 or 15 years ago when there were still a few people around who had worked with Rex Harrison. And so I called a bunch of people and they all said the same thing, which is, when are you writing about? Oh, 1967, no. Like if you were writing about the 40s or 50s, he was still human. But by the mid 1960s, he was just a monster. Right. So sometimes you just have to go with the consensus. It's so weird as well that there's such a I mean, I, I grew up watching Rex Harrison films and thinking he's here's a twinkly eyed avuncular figure who seems to be kindness and, and you know, dignity under under terrible circumstances or comedically cra crazy circumstances. I, but I, I was prepared because I read Richard Burton's diaries a few years ago. And um, yeah, he, he dishes the dirt on several times. He goes out with Rex Harrison and his wife. I think when they were making Staircase, there are some terrible story. I mean, terrible, sort of hilarious because you don't have to be their stories. I mean, you know, alcohol is, is sort of a, a major character in the book and was obviously <laughs> responsible for a lot of what the problems were. The only thing I'll say in Rex Harrison's defense is that you know, his his extreme impatience with the way that movie was pulled together is understandable. I mean, he he wasn't wrong to think this is an absolutely chaotic mess. What have I gotten myself into? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think also that sort of Dr. Doolittle paradigm, it kind of gives the lie to the idea that these excesses of the new Hollywood people, the, the Apocalypse Now and the Heaven's Gate, were something that was tied into what to them being countercultural. I mean, the excesses were right there, even when it was a studio picture yeah. and it was, you know... That, that's a great point. I mean, the 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 pharmaceuticals were different, but the the idea of, of <laughs> like ego and excess pulling a production out of control far precedes the advent of um, you know the new Hollywood. The, I, I think the big paradigm shift in the new Hollywood was was of course that directors were given much freer reign that they that they sort of became stars and so you know a, a a director could pull a production out of control in a way that wasn't as common before the mid 60s when there were when there were tighter reins on i mean even in in 1966 you know when mike nichols made who's afraid of virginia wolf he was fired by jack warner out of the out of the uh, editing room in post production you, you know that even as late as 1966 you know when a director uh, was sort of acting up too much a studio could just absolutely pull the reins and and that really did change a lot in in the new hollywood era yeah i mean that that's a good way of 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 segueing into mike nichols because of all the directors uh you know i mean i have a lot of time for alpha pen and a lot of respect for for norman jewison but mike nichols you do get a feeling is this sort of new idea of the well, as you, as you were sort of saying, the, the director is superstar at this point. He came to Hollywood as one kind of superstar because he had this reputation both as a performer and as a, a real uh, New York theater hit maker. 
So even before he ever directed a, a foot of film, you know, he, he was absolutely a, a star in Hollywood. There, there may have been people there who were skeptical about whether he could switch mediums, but but there, there was no one who was not impressed by his track record prior to his first movie. Yeah, he's sort of almost got like an, I mean, there's an Orson Welles trajectory there a little bit that he's he seems to be a, a star in three different ways before he even gets to Hollywood. You know, he's a comedy star uh, with Elaine May and, and, and you know, he's on television. He's a massive theatre success with her. And then, yeah, the career as a director. Was the biography a, a sort of, did that come out of writing this earlier book? Was that where your interest was sparked? No, it, it didn't really, although the, it, it, doing the first book contributed to it in a way. I mean, I met, I met Mike around 2000 or 2001 before I had the idea to do the first book because uh, he was working on uh, the HBO adaptation of Angels in America, which my husband wrote. So I got to know Mike socially that way. And then soon after Angels aired is when I came up with the idea for pictures of a revolution. And so then I started interviewing Mike and talking to him and I, I started to get even more of a sense of what, what a fascinating career he had had and what, what a, an interesting, thoughtful assessor of that career he was. But I, you know, I concentrated incredibly hard on just the graduate and the, the years immediately prior to it. I didn't get into anything else at all. We talked a little bit about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf um, because the graduate was already underway while he was working on it, but only in that context. So I, when Pictures of a Revolution was published, which was 2008, I absolutely thought, oh, that's it. I'm done. Like, that's my take on uh, Mike, and that's my take on Mike's most famous movie, and uh, I'll move on to other things. And it did not occur to me to write a biography until shortly after he died, which was at the end of 2014, many years later. Mm-hmm. And was and was that the well what what was the the sort of inciting incident in that in, in making that decision? It, it was honestly my publisher's idea. I mean, mm. they, they came to me and said, you know, we know you have this connection and we know you've written about him. Would you be interested in this? And and from a creative point of view, I felt you know the the two things. I had not thought of writing a biography of anyone. I, I that it wasn't the kind of book that I had been thinking about. But as soon as they said it, I felt excited and scared, which are the two kind of laboratory conditions I need to do a book. Um, <laughs> Plus and, caffeine and <laughs> no, you're away. Right, right. Um, uh, but I just thought, honestly, what, what the impetus was, was realizing how little I knew about him. I thought I've written, I've never written about theater. I've never written about comedy. Um, I've never written about Elaine May. I've never tried to write a life from beginning to end. There, there's so, so much that I don't understand about how his career came to be and how he made his decisions that I thought I will I will never get tired of exploring this life uh, and and learning about it from from the the time I uh, during the time it will take to do the book and I also thought I'll learn new things if I really do this book right I'll learn things I don't know about how movies are made and how theater is made and that that was something I just really wanted to do so that was kind of the spark for it did you find it did you find there was any disadvantages to you knowing him, having a friendship, a relationship with him prior to, to writing the book? 
I, I worried about it a lot because I thought, I sort of worried about it in advance. I thought when I'm doing my research or God forbid, when I'm writing, am I going to feel like I have him over my shoulder reading what I'm doing, commenting on what I'm doing, annotating what I'm doing? And I guess one, I think two things helped me. One is that from the time I signed the contract to write the book to the time I wrote the first page of the book, many years had gone by. So, so I had a lot of time to get used to it. And the other thing was, I didn't strictly research in chronological order, but I did absolutely start at the beginning of his life and his career because of the urgency of doing interviews with, frankly, a dwindling number of people who were over 80, over 90, in some cases over 100. So the first long stretch of research was about Mike before I was born, like sometimes decades before I was born. And in in the months that I was working on that, he just started to feel like a subject to me. He didn't feel like the person that I had known and had dinner with and had listened to tell stories. He felt like this person I had never met and didn't understand and was trying to figure out. So I was kind of, the only times I would ever suddenly think like, oh my God, right, I knew him, were when I would hear his voice, when there'd be audio. But when I was doing the rest of the research, I just thought, this is my subject. And and any kind of trepidation I had about, well, what if I find out something really terrible or, or you know, am I going to constantly think like, would he like this in the book or out of the book? That just never, it never arose. I guess there's a cert, certain kind of ruthlessness that biographers have to, you know, have to have a little bit of. Mm. And and I just kind of, I thought, I know the kind of books he was interested in. I know he, he liked truthful things. And I know that when I was working on Pictures of the Revolution, some of the very worst stories about Mike and his behavior, most of them, in fact, came from Mike. Right. So... I had, I, I used that just, uh, you know, probably self-servingly, I said to myself, I think he would want a truthful book. And I gave myself permission to, to write one. Yeah, I mean, you definitely get that impression of him from, from, the, from the book the, uh, uh, and from his own comments that he is someone who himself would be ruthless in the pursuit of truth when it came to his, his direction. But yeah, he's quite cruel to Dustin Hoffman, isn't he, through the, through the, the direction of that film. Yeah, I think that's a, a really painful, complicated relationship because, mm. of course, his decision to cast Dustin Hoffman was a huge act of faith. He was nobody, and he and he looked like nobody. He, you know, he didn't look like a movie star. He didn't look like, you know, Robert Redford, who wanted to be the star of that movie. And I think that there were moments when when Mike was cruel. There were also moments when he was incredibly encouraging to Hoffman and and really was able to kind of draw him out and 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 get him in exactly the kind of head that he needed to get in. So it, it certainly, it's interesting because Hoffman, when I interviewed him for The Graduate, said by the end of production on that movie, which was very long, I don't think anybody cared whether I lived or died. You know, he, he, it was that rough on him. And yet it wasn't. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Like, he and Mike were not on the outs. You know, they, they, they never worked together again, but they came close a number of times. And Hoffman later said he really regretted that they didn't work together again. And Mike, even toward the end of his life, would joke about, you know, when he won a Lifetime Achievement Award at Lincoln Center, uh, Mike got up and made a speech saying, where the hell is Dustin Hoffman? It's, it's you know, like not having the monster show up at a tribute to Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, it was a challenging relationship. I think in in many ways, it was a very affectionate relationship as well. Uh, I mean, one of the best things you have with uh, Mike Nichols, I think, as a subject, as a biographer, is the fact that he does give such good copy. I mean, he's, he, you know, he speaks in aphorisms. He's He's got an off-the-cuff way of, of talking, which which most comedy writers would chop off two fingers to get. Right. Too good sometimes, because, you, you know, the, those those perfectly turned phrases can sometimes represent the truth and sometimes disguise the truth. You know, Mike really knew how to put up a wall that didn't look like a wall. He'd give you a beautiful quote that said nothing, but that you wouldn't be able to resist using. So so I had to I had to be careful about not always letting him have the last word. But at the same time, he's, as you said, you know, wonderfully droll and articulate and has a really distinctive voice. And I wanted I wanted his story in large part told by him because because he tells it really well. And and so it was more a question of like picking picking the quotes where I thought he was digging past kind of performative presentation to honesty and introspection. And he did that a lot. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that that, that comes across very much. To, speaking about his film career, of course, he swaps The Graduate for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, quite early on. Well, the Graduate was supposed to be his first film or maybe there was a couple of early attempts before beforehand. He, he had toyed with doing this play called um, The Public Eye as a movie. But, but yes, The Graduate was at one point going to be the first movie he did after The Public Eye fell apart. And then Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf sort of jumped the line and there was a moment to do it right then. And so that, but, but yes, uh, I think Mike always thought for a long stretch that The Graduate would be his first movie. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is an amazingly sort of confident debut, especially from a, a theatre director doing a, th- a theatre piece, a play. And yet he manages to render it cinematic without not necessarily doing anything gimmicky, but he's moving the camera a lot. He's, you know, it's the opposite of a sort of filmed play. It's amazing to me because I think Mike thought strategically a lot of the time. And I think he thought 
I know how to do this. It's it's a play with four people. I've done a play with four people. It's a really limited location, so I don't have to learn how to shoot outdoors. And, and you know, I think he thought this is very manageable as my first movie as a theater director. And yet what he ends up with is the two biggest movie stars in the world, you know, one of whom has to have makeup to age her by 15 years and the other of whom is struggling with a serious drinking problem, making a movie out of a script that is going to to kind of destroy the production code and and that they don't know how much they can get away with and he has to learn how to make movies on the fly i mean you know and by his own admission he knew just absolutely nothing technically about you know how do you anything from how do you shoot people coming through a door to what do different lenses mean to how do you know that you've gotten all the shots from all the angles of a scene that you'll need to cut it all together and and Mike was not I mean he could be high-handed but he was really willing to learn and and really eager to take help from people who he thought knew what they were doing whether that was his editor Sam Osteen or uh, Haskell Wexler, who shot Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, or Robert Surtees, who shot The Graduate, uh, or, or Dick Silbert, who was a production designer, but could also keep the entirety of a movie in his head and its themes in his head while he was working on something. Mike really relied uh, from his first movie on, on collaboration. And, and he really liked having other talented people in the room. So I think that was part of the key to his longevity. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, he has such a run there with with his first two films that 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 um, and, and also you know he does you know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in black and white, uh, partly because of Elizabeth Taylor's makeup effects not not looking good in color, and then with the Graduate you have this sort of young film from you know it's about youth it's about uh, young adulthood and that moment whereas whereas the first one is is about disappointed age really and you know things going wrong although i guess the characters aren't as old as you know i mean old was di- was a different age in in the 1960s i guess I think Richard Burton was always old, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even when he was an angry young man, he was like a, right. a, a bit of a grumpy <laughs> old guy as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I have to say he's one of my favorite actors from a, from a child. I used to watch him on sort of, you know, The Wild Geese and Where Eagles Dare, and he was my favorite sort of action hero sort of thing, even though I think in those films he, he appears very little, actually. It's mostly a double playing him... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there, there were times when he phoned it in, but there were a lot of times when he didn't. And I love watching him. I think I think his performance in in Virginia Woolf is is really like an all time great. Um, and and to know what I didn't really know a lot about was um, how much of a problem the drinking was and how he, how much he struggled with it even during the shoot. And uh, that I find really moving, you know, and that was something that Mike was always moved by. I mean, he had no tolerance for a certain kind of misbehavior, but he worked with a number of actors who had serious drinking problems. And he was um, in actors very, sympathetic to it he didn't he didn't see it as 
I mean, he may have seen it as a kind of weakness, but it, it was a struggle, I think, that he was very moved by, and he wanted to help those actors just to get to the point where they could do what he needed them to do on camera. I mean, that was true of George C. Scott and uh, Walter Matthau on stage, or, or Art Carney in The Odd Couple, who had, a, you know, was an alcoholic. I mean, he was, um, you know, Mike was um, not an unsympathetic man. Yeah, and of course, later on, he, he had his own problems with addiction in terms of his uh, sort of use of, of cocaine. And I mean, I found it, there was a, a very rich irony, almost tra a comic irony in him directing Postcards from the Edge. And, and you know, basically they're all doing toots and yet they're, they're doing this film which is supposed to be about rehab. I mean, I even thought like the casting of Richard Dreyfus as a, as a doctor in that felt like a, a very, a very large wink. I'm not sure if that would have been picked up at the it, time. It, it's all really complicated. I mean, you know, he, he, Mike had just come off of Working Girl where he had dealt with, you know, Melanie Griffith having a cocaine and alcohol problem. And there's a kind of tough interaction between an actress and a director in postcards that is very much based on that working girl experience and yet at the same time he's making postcards from the edge with Dennis Quaid who's having his own drug problem at the time and, and goes into rehab after the movie's done so you know it was something that was hard certainly hard to uh, get away from in the mid and late 80s and, and early 90s Anne Roth who was his longtime costume designer uh, said to me really bluntly you can't tell the story of Working Girl without cocaine. But uh, a lot of people made the point that it wasn't, the, the big dividing line wasn't between people who did it and people who didn't. It was between people who had it under control, you know, weekend users and people who let it affect their work. That, that was the kind of class distinction on sets at that time, which is really extraordinary to think about. Do you think that situation still pervades today or do you think it's much much tighter i think it's certainly like substance abuse problems haven't gone away but i think i don't i don't think things are nearly as as freewheeling anymore i mean first of all there's there's the the culture of rehab is so pervasive that the idea is like well if you have a problem why wouldn't you just go to rehab and and deal with it and also these you know these giant budget studio movies these these immense franchise chapter behemoths there's no room for that stuff i mean it's it's a little like ned Beatty and network saying you know you 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 can't meddle with with uh, the forces of commerce that way in a studio movie anymore. There's just there's no economic time for you to have coke problems. I mean, looking at his career, he 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 never quite gets up to those heights that he he got to with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and uh, so well, in not not in terms of cinema, maybe in terms of his plays and his television work. Do you think that's fair? Is that fair to say? Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate? I, I think it is fair. I mean, one thing. When I was working on the book, I always knew that in my head, I was always really excited to get to Catch-22, which right. is the movie that he makes right after The Graduate. Because first of all, I thought, oh, great. Finally, I can write past The Graduate because I, I truly dreaded writing about The Graduate again. I thought, I don't know how I can write about this same movie twice and want it be exciting to get past that and tell more of the story but also Mike had four you know a giant comedy career not very long but but huge four New York stage hits in a row with the first four plays that he directed and then two 
huge back-to-back movie successes. And I thought, won't it be interesting to, to find out what happens when he comes to Earth? Not just when he has a flop, which Catch-22 was, but when he has to accommodate himself to a whole new rhythm of, like, you're a director, you're going to have successes, you're going to have failures, you're going to have a couple of big successes and a couple of things that are critically acclaimed but don't make a ton of money and a couple of things that make a lot of money even though they have okay reviews. You're going to have a more normal career now. How do you process that? How do you, when you don't have your first failure until you're almost 40 and you have what turned out to be 40 years of your career still ahead of you how, how do you um how do you function how do, how do you what do you learn from failure what do you learn from your ability to recover from failure and and i think one of the ways in which mike's career was really exemplary was how well he handled that he not all of his movies or plays were good he he had hot streaks and cold streaks but he was i think remarkably undefensive about failure i think catch 22 showed him that he could have a big public flop and survive it and keep going and right from that point you know he goes from catch 22 to carnal knowledge a small scale movie that he does simply because he believes in the script and the writer and eventually the cast And I think that sort of set him on a really interesting course. You know, for the rest of his career, he said, this is what you do after you have a big failure. You should turn to something that you you may have no commercial expectations for just because you love it. I've really been moved by the fact that as directors and as writers have read this book, which first of all, just it really excites me that they're reading it. A lot of them have said that, that the failures are what, mean the most to them that that what they really want to see how through your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and even 80s you handle it when something that you've poured your heart into just doesn't work and how you pick up and keep going i i think that is for me if the book has a lesson in it it's that it's that sort of stamina and persistence to to sort of bounce back yeah, and um, honesty with yourself mm. and, and ability to look at what went wrong and why and, and try to uh, course correct for the future. I mean, that's, you know, whether you're whether you're uh, in the movie business or not, that's a sort of good, good life approach. <laughs> right, right, for everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to give the impression either that, you know, following the graduate, he made, yeah, you know, he made a ton of great movies after the graduate as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, it would have been dismal if I had just been writing about, you know, 40 years of failure. I don't think I would have taken that on or or I would have ended the book a lot sooner. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, there are those, the, there are those movies, even like Catch-22, which, you know, maybe didn't quite hit with the public for reasons that are not necessarily because of the movie itself. That I think the book really encourages people to go back and, and watch again with a with a different eye. I mean, I remember seeing Catch-22 very, well, I must be like 14, I saw it on television, Channel 4 in England, and it was, and it, it just freaked me out so much. It's a war film that freaks that freaked me out several scenes that you, you describe in the book as well. So I, ne- I, you know, I knew it was, it was considered sort of unsuccessful, especially from the point of view of this great novel that it was, that it wasn't able to sort of replicate on the screen, but it doesn't strike me as an unsuccessful film. It kind of does what it does. 
I think that's a great point. I think of all of Mike's movies, it's the one that's right on the line. And it was even right on the line for him. I mean, he alternated between saying, nope, we did it wrong. We tried and we failed with especially later in his life saying, you know, there are actually things I really like about that movie. And I understand the ways in which it got away from me, but uh, it has, I think it has some valuable things in it. And I completely agree with that. Like, I think it's a really interesting movie. I, I get why it was a flop and I get why it was wrong for its moment, but it's not, there's nothing about it that is thoughtless or heedless or unconsidered. You, you can see that it's a movie made by people who intelligently wrestled with this monster of a novel and tried to figure out a way to, to uh, bring it to the screen. Yeah, I think I read on Twitter one of your tweets talking about um, Heartburn as one of the films that you would like to, if everybody sort of goes and re-watches Heartburn or watches it for the first time, that's the, you know, your, your, your work is done. I, I love Heartburn and I, I, I've tweeted that a couple of times and what's really fun to me is probably about seven out of ten people will come back to me and say, oh my god, that was fantastic. I can't, why did I never see this? This Meryl Streep performance is just great. There are all these brilliant little moments in it. And the other three people will come back and say, well, that was shit. <laughs> like, there are people like, I will not persuade at all. <laughs> and, and, um, I, you know, I like a divisive movie and, and it, it still is there. I, I think the reason I keep telling people about Heartburn is because I think of all of the movies that Mike made that didn't get good reviews, that one, the bad reviews for that movie were the most motivated by things that had nothing to do with the movie, by this weird fixation uh, of the time on the Nora Ephron, Carl Bernstein divorce and all the publicity that had gotten. And also by a kind of problematic belief on the part of a lot of male critics that Mike had sort of given himself a demotion in the 1980s by deciding to become a director of women's pictures. Like there's a lot of weird gendered stuff in those heartburn reviews that has not aged well so i do think it's the movie that that most deserves a fresh critical maybe of, of that that and catch 22 i think are, are the movies that that i'd love to see critics kind of tackle again not the gary shandling movie then that's not that's not getting <sighs> You know, I I mean, I didn't, I talked to a bunch of people who were in the Gary Shandling movie and, and who worked on it. Nobody was willing to say, no, it's really great. It's just misunderstood. I mean, it just didn't work. Um, you, you know, uh, Annette Benning uh, said really interestingly, it got too big for itself that we had always imagined it as a sort of, you know, when you think about what was being made in the late 90s, things like being John Malkovich, for instance, th they thought of it as that size a movie. And and the strange thing is, you know, I think it's the movie that Mike got the most money for of anything he ever made, um, something like $8 million. And, and the minute you get a salary like that, everybody else's salaries go up and suddenly you're making a very big movie that needs to be big in order to justify all those salaries. And I don't know if it ever could have worked or not, but the scale on which that movie was made was just not a good thing for it. Yeah, it's just not appropriate to, it's a sort of a small sort of indie comedy idea. 
you know, right. It's a sort of silly, dirty joke slash romance. It it should feel casual and a little grubby and tossed off, maybe. I mean, the funny thing is, isn't it? I, I watched the Gary Shandling documentary uh, that, that came out recently, and you sort of see it from the different angle of, of Shandling's, Shandling's point of view there. And it seems that Nichols is is someone who who had to have a relationship with his star, so he would have these collaborations with Meryl Streep and with Jack Nicholson, and and as you said with Dustin Hoffman, that very even slightly ambiguous relationship, but it was a relationship, and you get the feeling with Gary Shandling that just that relationship just wasn't there. Right. I think that there were a couple of times late in his career when Mike said that he, the mistake he essentially made was casting someone only off of their work without meeting them first. And right. and then he then he gets face to face with them, whether it's, it's Gary Shandling or Morgan Freeman and Francis McDormand, who he put on stage in a Broadway revival of this play called The Country Girl. Sometimes, like, if the chemistry isn't there, I, I think Mike found that exceptionally Hard. You know, another instance of that is uh, the Robert De Niro movie that he never finished, Bogart Slayer, when when he really didn't spend any time with um, De Niro. And De Niro said to me about that movie, you know, if 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 I were doing it now, if I if I had known then what I know now, I would have said, let's all sit down together and do a reading of this script first and see if it works and see if we're right together and see if I'm right for it. But they didn't do that then. And I, I do think that that because Mike was such an actor-connected director and that relationship was so primary to him and so important, when it wasn't there, he could really feel at sea. Yeah, he, he's just like, I don't, I don't even know how to talk to this guy. We're not talking the same language. Uh, right, you know, and he could talk to a lot of different actors. It's not mm -hmm. like he directed them all the same way. You know, the, the range of people he got great performances out of is extraordinary. I mean, and, and as, as varied as Richard Burton and... Philip Seymour Hoffman and right. Julia Roberts and Natalie Portman, you know, but, but when it wasn't there, it really wasn't there. And yeah. he almost felt like all of his tools had been taken away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the, the, the amazing thing of looking at that, that run of films and seeing how much, how many great collaborators he made sort of uh, like Emma Thompson uh, in angels in America and, who who sort of become very close friends. I mean, even Gene Hackman, he fires him from The Graduate and then he he casts him in Postcards from the Edge and sort of has, and, and, and The Birdcage. Right. And has these, these you know, strong relationships with them. Yeah, it's, um well, Mike, when he fired an actor, often did not fire the actor because he thought he was a bad actor. Um, there were all kinds of reasons for it. But but yeah, those collaborations, I mean, and a lot of them did become lifelong friendships. That, that was really key. And I think one reason I was really interested in writing the, the life of Mike as a director was that he's a great counterexample to the way we think of directors a lot today. I mean, I think I think there's a prevailing idea still, this, this auteurist thing, that a director is someone who has to sail the ship of his vision through everybody who is in the way of that vision, from the screenwriter who doesn't get it, to the actors who don't get it, to the studio who doesn't get it. You have to steer that ship into port. And Mike's approach... I mean, Mike was very strong-minded and did have a, a picture of what he wanted his movies to be in his head, but he was also intensely a believer in collaboration, a, a believer that a director's job is to 
bring the best out of his actors, to bring the best out of his writers, his cinematographers, and to let them elevate him. And I do think that that's, that's a legitimate, important way of being a director that is very often undervalued or under-discussed in, in contemporary film discourse. Yeah, it's that that thing of like the, uh, putting aside the ego, and and it's a weird combination of sort of I'm the director and sort of attempting to efface yourself from your role to some degree. Right, and Mike was not a man of small ego. I mean, he you know he he was absolutely the guy in charge on sets. But you know, the, I mean, I think part of this comes from being a, a performer, mm-hmm. um, you know, who who rose to success as part of a duo where you know, you had to carry the other person and let them carry you because you were in it together. And part of it comes from being a theater director where the the writer, at, at least in New York theater, the writer really is the boss. I mean, the, the a, a playwright having a Broadway production done can fire the director at any point. The director can't fire the writer. So Sounds like uh, heaven. <laughs> <laughs> It probably depends on whether you talk to directors or writers, but... um, I'm coming from a writer's point of view. (laughs) In a way, I think it's not the worst training for um, a a film director to be a little bit humble, you know, or or to to understand how valuable collaboration is. Wow, yeah, no, that's a a really interesting point. The Mike Nichols biography was your third book, I think, because you did the five, five... Five Came Back, yeah. Five Came Back, which was also made into a big Netflix uh, documentary series, which is amazing. Uh, have you got plans for another uh, another book already just dating? Is there anything you can tell us about that? I, I wish I could tell you more than I can tell you, but what I can tell you is, yes, I, I have just in the last month gotten to the point where I this idea that I've work, been working on for a while has finally come together, and I'm going to... Uh, I'm about to sign a contract to do it. And uh, what else can I tell you? It's not like any of my first three books and it's not another biography. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, brilliant. Well, okay. One last thing before before we finish. What film book would you recommend? It can be any choice. What film book would you would you recommend to our listeners? I am going to recommend one that is not out yet, but is coming out in the next month or so. It's this fantastic new book called Fun City Cinema by a writer named Jason Bailey. And what it is, is essentially like a hundred year history of New York movies, but also a hundred year history of all of the considerations that went into making movies in New York and and sort of New York's emergence and evolution as a city that could accommodate itself to film. So I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I learned a ton about New York from this book that I didn't know and and a ton about the specific movies that Jason writes about. He also gives you for each each chapter a kind of great viewing guide. So among other things, this is a fantastic watch along book. Like you you will you will emerge from it with a really extraordinary list of all different kinds of movies to watch. And it's 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 a lovely, smart, uh, new approach. I really enjoyed it. Oh, brilliant. That's, I went, I came to New York for the first time like a few few years ago, for the first and only time uh, up until now. And I just think it's so amazing when you go to a city that you've seen so many times in the movies, shown in so many different ways, and you're actually there and you suddenly go, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so that bridge is over there. And this is 
this you know you sort of work out the topography and the geography of it and then when you go home you watch all these movies with a totally fresh eye you know right and you'll you'll see a lot of movies where you know the uh, car rounds the corner and suddenly they're actually two miles away you know it's i see that all the time but yeah i mean you can't you can't really walk around new york almost without crossing a street where something has been filmed at some point i work in venice and so uh, i actually remember going to see the tourist which was filmed in venice ish you know and uh, they do things like they move the airport so it's opposite the St. Mark's Square so uh, there's just loads of ridiculous geography that goes on there and I think in the Casino Royale he's, he runs across St. Mark's but he's running from and to the same corner they've, they've, just, <laughs> they've, they've just obviously cordoned off one corner and then dress, dress it differently but if you know they're just like that he's just running backwards and forwards to this same corner there's so. a pretty good tradition of Venice movies though I mean, there's there's a lot to choose from there. I mean, like instantly think of um, Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now is right near where I teach. The The old church, Donald Sutherland, is wow. restoring, which is kind of the, one of the oldest and kind of not ugliest churches. But for Venice, it's the most sort of crumbly, falling down sort of thing. It's It's not... I think that's what's brilliant about that movie and in fact quite unique is it shows Venice in a very sort of dirty scruffy city not it doesn't show it as just the postcard with the gondola rides and the this and the that you know I I haven't been to Venice but I I feel like when I do go don't look now is what I will most expect it to look like based on the movies that I've seen yeah yeah it, it, it does not disappoint well if you ever do come I will give you the guided tour (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Mark, for giving us your time and, and best of luck with your new project. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me on. This was really fun. So that was my conversation with Mark Harris. His new book, Mike Nichols, The biography is available from everywhere you can buy quality books. Likewise, pictures from the revolution or scenes from the revolution, depending on whether you're getting the UK or the uh, US edition. His recommended book was Jason Bailey's upcoming book, Fun City Cinema, a book about New York films. Thanks go to Elliot Atkins for the music and Elliot Harwood for the artwork and also to you for listening. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.